how are you doing this morning? Oh man, I'm I'm okay. Um, tired. Like it feels like a year has happened in the past month. Um, uh huh. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I guess I'm doing I'm doing all right. How are you guys doing? <laughs> I'm doing okay. Uh, I hit a deer recently, so I've just been scrambling to get a new car, uh, which oh. I succeeded in doing. Um, but it was an enormous hassle. And then on top of that, I'm doing school in the evenings in addition to work in the mornings plus two podcasts. So uh, I'm drinking a lot of black coffee is my mm. mode of operation right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm just like honestly with uh, like co- constantly covering all the news, trying to stay in contact with people and trying to get some more art done for the, the show and all that. Uh, I'm luckily doing some work with you. Uh, you know, staying busy, but I mean, I'm not overly busy. If anything, I'm more mentally taxed by all of the things mm. that we're fucking dealing with right now, mm-hmm, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, that, I mean, that's, that's the thing is like, even if there's a day where you're like, well, I wasn't, uh, a pile of like smoldering rubble from all the mm-hmm. work. Um, you still feel exhausted because of fucking everything going on. It is incredibly emotionally taxing. Um, yeah. And, like, even, like, sending you stuff like yesterday. Like, I mean, like, it just wrecks you listening to that. Um, and thank you for, for being so awesome and hopping on and helping us out with, with those edits. It's been a huge help. Yeah, I, uh, I I had gotten a little distracted and then I'm like, oh, yeah, I got to do this. And I load up the file and I start listening to the, the clip and I'm like, oh, fuck, I should have done this immediately. This is so important. <laughs> Okay, listen, we're get, we're getting it out today. Um, the important thing is that we get it out there. Uh, but I, yeah. I, I mean, like, I'd literally been out of contact with Muhammad for two and a half weeks. And, and to be honest, I thought he was dead because um, he wasn't posting anything. And yeah, then just like, I don't know where the fuck he was, but he had like a tiny cell signal. And he was like, I'm alive. Can I send you this voice message I recorded? I was like, yes. <laughs> um yeah, don't yeah. worry about it at all. It was good. I I mean, I mean, it wasn't good, but it was it was good to hear, you know, from people actually there on the ground. Mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah, I've been I've been trying literally every single day since October eighth. I've been trying to get someone from Gaza. Obviously, I mean, everyone who else hasn't, but uh, it's taken a full month to get those three minutes, and it and it took like two and a half weeks to get the nine minutes with Isa Amro I got in Hebron. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it was that was probably the most intense interview I think I've ever done because he like like I guess I'll I'll tell this quickly and then I know we got to get going. But like I had actually talked to him on the phone, like because I had set up so many interviews with folks over the past month, and we locked down a time, and then like without fail, every single time I would lose touch with them. And like they would lose signal, they would lose service, whatever. And so with Issa, like I actually got on the phone with him and we were, he was like, yes, I can do it. Um, but it's crazy right now. Can you call back in 50 minutes? Then can you call back in 30 minutes? Then I kept calling back and the line was dead. And I was just sitting yeah. here at my desk for hours um, and nothing. So then I, you know, I kind of gave up and had to go to the office and like literally as I'm walking in, I get a text saying, uh, I'm sorry, I was being chased by settlers. I'm safe now to friend's house and I have 10 minutes to talk. And so I just dropped everything, like f- opened my computer 
hit QuickTime and called him on speakerphone and just held my phone up because I didn't have any. I didn't have my phone connected to anything. Um, but that's that's how that interview went down. <laughs> so it's like nerves Damn. are shot. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, I'll, but we have probably... also good news to talk about as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, folks should really listen to the real news and and working people. So, but we'll we'll get to plugging that in a minute. Absolutely. I mean, I'm about to plug it right now because. This is another episode of your favorite labor podcast. My name is John. And I'm Lena. And we are joined today by a returning champion uh, and dear friend of the show, Maximilian Alvarez, the editor-in-chief of The Real News Network and host of Working People Podcast. Thank you so much for coming back, Max. Thanks for having me back on, comrades. Great to see you. Absolutely. I'm so excited to have you with us today. And I mean, like, uh, I know that I'm including a little bit of what we just talked about in the uh cold open but i just want to reiterate like people should go and check out max's show and the, and the network that max is on the tr- the real news network they're doing really great reporting on what's happening in palestine as well as all over the world uh for working people and speaking of working people the working people podcast does really awesome interviews like directly with workers so i know that we generally just kind of report the news and it's also really important to hear directly from the workers themselves so encourage people to go check out max's show in order to hear those sorts of things but to get our first bit of our show uh going we're going to be talking a little bit at, just like we were in the introduction uh about what's happening kind of in palestine because as millions take to the streets worldwide to demand the end to genocide in palestine workers have begun to answer the call from palestinian unions to take action as well more u.s unions have finally begun to join the call for a ceasefire in defiance of both the pro-zionist leadership of the afl-cio and our bloodthirsty politicians. On Monday, SEIU Local 1021 in Northern California issued a resolution calling for a ceasefire. And finally, on Wednesday, the American Postal Workers Union became the first AFL-CIO member union to officially call for a ceasefire as well. Notably, the president of the 200,000-member union, Mark Diamondstein, has been the strongest voice in the AFL-CIO leadership fighting against the Federation's disgraceful silence of member of member unions for standing up for Palestinian workers. In their statement, the union said, quote, We call on our government, which is the primary foreign benefactor of the Israeli government, to use all of its power to protect innocent lives and to help bring about peace in the region and not use our tax dollars for more war, end quote. I mean, and that's just it's such a baseline, you know, correct stance. I feel like calling for a ceasefire right now is like basically the least you can do. And it's great to see that AFL member unions are standing up and doing this. But it's a little bit tough to swallow that so much of the American labor movement has already been outflanked by the president of France. You know, it's like if he can call for a ceasefire before your labor organization can maybe it's time to rethink about the way you you know approach politics in these organizations because he's no peach you know he's a piece of trash he just happens to be right right now 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And repression is ramped up as well. Numerous workers across many fields have been fired for their principled opposition to genocide. And some companies continue to ramp up their draconian attacks as they see that they are losing the narrative. This week, Hearst Publishing announced a new extreme social media policy banning all employees from making any political statements, even liking posts from their private social media accounts, which their bosses may find objectionable. Which fuck that, man! This is ridiculous. Yeah, the Hearst uh, Hearst runs magazines like Esquire, Town and Country, and Cosmopolitan. Their new social media policy threatens workers with termination if they post anything the company disagrees with. Quote: Just because you didn't say something on social media and instead only liked it or reposted it, it still suggests to your audience that you approve of the particular statement or views. End quote. Oh my and god. I mean, It's absolutely ridiculous. This form of liberal censorship is particularly insidious because it hides that it is enforcing the far right politicians line under the auspices of like not being controversial. It's bullshit. It's absolute bullshit. And it's a hair's breadth away from the kind of thing that liberals and conservatives are constantly harping about like, oh, someone's going to tell me how to vote. Someone's going to tell me what I can and can't say on the Internet. But then as soon as it's the, you know, conflict in occupied Palestine, everybody is like, oh, actually, it's okay if we discriminate against people with uh, opinions outside of the mainstream, which, again, it's not even outside of the mainstream to support Palestine. The vast majority of Americans either do support Palestinians or basically admit to not knowing anything about the conflict. Yeah. And I mean, like, yeah, calls for a ceasefire are not small. It is that is no. the and like you said earlier that is kind of the minimum statement at this point but like still mm-hmm. it, it, it's very it's common and this is really just saying that like you have to toe our line at all times it's it's ridiculous to, for to keep a job to make sure that you can feed your family mm-hmm. well and like it's it's definitely not the irony is definitely not lost on me considering that we're talking about Hearst magazines when of course William Randolph Hearst was um you know one of the the uh along with what is it Joseph Pulitzer like the the two staples of yellow journalism mm-hmm. in the 19th century uh and you know a, a a like competitive sort of newspaper race to like sell uh, papers by using sensationalist headlines and even fabricating stories about the Spanish-American war. Like, I mean, like just, just so much uh, fake news as we would say these days um, to perpetuate uh, the, the capital interests of the paper's owners, as well as the imperial interests of the United States. This is the legacy of Hearst. Like, I want to be clear, I'm not conflating that legacy with the people who are working at Hearst magazines right now. I've actually interviewed folks from uh, the the union uh, earlier this year on the Real News Network about their efforts to, you know, get a fair contract. And they're the ones who are being silenced by the company right now. But it's just... It's really fucking, pardon my French, really fucking, um, you know, uh, 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 
there's some there's something really ironic about the fact that that Hearst magazines right now is like muzzling its own employees who you know uh, just out of basic human decency and conscience want to speak out against the genocide that we are literally watching uh, unfold before our very eyes and now that same magazine that sold lies over a hundred years ago to to propel us into war is telling uh, its employees that they can't say anything about this war like that is just one of those great historical ironies that uh, keeps me awake at night. Absolutely. Well, and uh, according to the Washington Post, the WGA, which represents the Hearst editorial staff, didn't waste any time and filed a ULP charge against the company for unilaterally changing policy without discussing it with the union. And the workers are also just not letting any of the additional repression stop them from taking any further action. So as we discussed briefly on last week's show, protesters at the Port of Oakland managed to block the loading of weapons uh, onto a transport ship for hours, forcing it to leave and go to another port. And on Monday, that ship arrived in Tacoma, Washington to attempt loading the weapons again and was immediately met with hundreds of protesters. Organizations like the Arab Resource Organizing Center rallied hundreds to blockade the port and jam traffic to prevent the ship from being loaded with its deadly cargo. The military transport ship, the Cape Orlando, was blockaded not only by land but by sea. Indigenous activists arrived at the port by canoe as well, blocking the ship from moving for hours. Protesters blocked the boat for over 12 hours, severely hampering its ability to perform its goals. At least one worker on the ship seeing the protests reached out in solidarity and refused to continue working. And that's something that we also see a lot with, um, you know, politically motivated uh, actions and uh, protests that interact with workers is it's not at all infrequent for workers to just like kind of look up from their job and be like, oh, I see what's happening here. Yeah, I'm not going to do <laughs> I'm not going to do this loading anymore. I'm, I'm fucking done with this. Yeah. And I mean, I think that that sort of thing is kind of a uh, a smaller part of our culture right now. And we re- I really want to like highlight how important it is that workers are willing to do this and especially to try to grab another worker to go with you because it's a lot easier legally to protect yourself when it's considered concerted protected worker activity mm-hmm. with, you know, another person, though. I mean, even if it you can't going out on your own, I mean, that's it's what you have to do, especially in light of the dire circumstances that that people in Palestine are in. Mm-hmm. Right. And like one just one note that I want to kind of throw in there for for listeners, because, um, you know, as we are as we're all doing is I know you all are doing every week as we're doing at the real news like uh, we're trying to, we're trying to lift up the stories of resistance wherever they are cropping up. We're trying to show, you know, regular working people in the U.S. and beyond that um, there is something you can do. And there, and there are many things that you can do. There are direct actions that you can participate in. Um, if there, you know, you can keep flooding your your elected representatives with calls for a ceasefire. I mean, like that's all important. Um, <clears throat> but. You know, like uh, th- th- there are, I think, uh, pockets of uh, organized worker resistance that I know we're, we're going to talk about um over the rest of the show, I mean, um, workers in Australia just had uh, a, a kind of major uh, um, action like this that uh, targeted shipments of Israeli uh, weapons. Uh, workers in the UK with the, a new group called Workers for Palestine, uh, Workers for a Free Palestine. I interviewed two of them in the UK who were part of the human blockade at uh, an Elbit Systems subsidiary. Elbit's the large is the largest weapons uh, manufacturer and. Supply supplier for the Israeli military. Um, 
I spoke with a rank and a rank and file healthcare worker in New York for my Breaking Point segment last week. Uh, they led um, th- this is healthcare workers for Palestine. They led a vigil uh, a week, uh, a little over a week ago, uh, in solidarity with their healthcare worker co- colleagues uh, in Palestine, particularly in Gaza, who are literally trying to like. Uh, you know, man in their post doing their duty while their hospital has no fuel and, uh, you know, babies are dying in incubators and, you know, the, 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 the bombs are dropping on the damn hospitals itself. So like, so there are pockets of increasing worker resistance where workers are using their power as workers to disrupt, you know, the, 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 the war machine itself. Um, but there are also plenty of other, obviously, actions that are being taken by just citizens, right? And and that are not necessarily labor actions, but are just as important um, and, and just as crucial, like the largest pro-Palestine march that we've seen in this country's history mm-hmm. last Saturday uh, in Washington, D.C. I was there on the ground covering it for The Real News. Folks can check out my report from that when I was talking to people on the ground about why they were there and why it was important. If you want to actually hear from people who were there, uh, I, I would recommend checking that out. But the point that I guess I'm making is like the 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 blockade of the, the ship in Oakland and Tacoma is an interesting case, right? Because um, I would contrast it with like, say, the, the, the um, official call from the Belgian transport unions uh, calling on their members to not unload uh, shipments or uh, cargo shipments carrying uh, weapons for that are that are destined to Israel that is is decidedly different from what um, we saw in Oakland and then Tacoma where these were you know other organizations you know like not necessarily labor unions showing up as as you as people should blocking this ship um, from being unloaded in the port of Oakland um, and successfully doing that so that the ship was then rerouted to the port of Tacoma, uh, where protesters also showed up. Um, and I, I believe that they were also successful, but then like the mili- like the military unloaded the ship, right? So the workers uh, with the ILWU, the International Longshore and Warehouse uh, Union, did not unload the ship. But they also did not lead the action. They did not necessarily even participate in the action as far as I understand, right? It was it was community members and, and community organizations sort of blocking uh, anyone from getting to the ship. And I, I, I guess I just I'm, – I'm mentioning that just to kind of like let folks listening know that that there is some sort of nuance here and, and – Uh, I don't want them to get the impression that, like, say, the ILWU was leading this like uh, the ILWU did during – to protest apartheid in South Africa where Mm -hmm. they they actually harnessed their collective labor power and used their power to stop production in that capacity as union members to disrupt the the supply chain that was uh, supporting South African apartheid. That's not necessarily what we're watching uh, here, um, but – like you know it, it could be right i mean i think this is this is like mm-hmm. part of the succession right the more that folks working at these sites uh, see these actions and talk to people who are there, the more that we can kind of build that and get like more of the labor side involved in this fight. But the, yeah, the, the, the ship blockade was a really interesting, uh, test case, but, um, I think, you know, it's, it's going to be really interesting to see 
if and when, you know, like more unions and, and workforces like are actually using their power as workers to disrupt those supply mm-hmm. chains. Yeah. And thanks so much for that historical context. It's it's actually really important. And honestly, I, I think it should encourage people to join these organizations and to, to lend their voice to, to kind of get that sort of get this movement really going and, and encourage more workers to participate. And and on that same day as the the blocking of the boat there, about a hundred protesters, many from the anti militarism youth organization dissenters, blockaded a weapons factory in St. Louis, uh, which manufactures the JDAM guided bombs being sold to Israel to drop on hospitals and refugee camps. The activists blocked entrances of the plant for several hours, preventing workers and managers from entering and forcing Boeing to cancel shifts at the plant and send workers home at the same time, very similar to the actions at the Elbit Systems manufacturing facilities like you were talking about, Max. And we also have a quote from an organizer of the group, Ellie Tang, who said in a statement, quote, We are joining millions of people across the United States and around the world in demanding an end to Israel's brutal assault on Gaza and its decades-long occupation of Palestine. We urge Congress and Biden to hear the calls of millions of us living in this country and push for a ceasefire. Until Congress blocks the bombs, we will, end quote. Hell yeah, that's oh, yeah. exactly the kind of attitude we want that we want to see from everybody, you know, from workers, from citizens, uh, whomever, wh- whomever has a conscience, I suppose. And as Max was alluding to earlier, I mean, this is not just a phenomenon confined to the United States in any way. We see workers rising up to stand against genocide across the world. Uh, also on Monday, dock workers in the port of Barcelona in Spain declared that they will refuse to load any military equipment destined for Israel in solidarity with Palestinian workers. Shortly after, dock workers in Genoa, Italy, announced that they would also block any attempted weapons shipments from their port as well. Well, hundreds of Italian workers and activists came together to block any weapons shipments. And so here again, we see that the the linkage between activism and, and labor action is, is uh, that division is becoming less pronounced, which, you know, I can only say is probably a good thing in the long run. Um, Karim Hamarne, president of the Association Liguria Palestina, said, quote, I thank you from the bottom of my heart for your solidarity, presence, and continuous commitment to our people. Ours is a just fight against the continuous genocide of Israel against the defenseless and innocent population of Gaza. We have been expropriated, erased, thrown out from there. Today, we do not have the possibility to live a just peace that gives dignity and self-determination to the Palestinian people. All the peace agreements signed by our leaders have not been successful because the Israeli government has no interest in a just peace with two peoples and two states. Our struggle is like that of the Italian partisans, end quote. Yeah, and I want to thank a friend of the show and and member of the Discord, Matteo, for bringing us the translation of this particular story. It's really, every single time we get news out of Italy, uh, it's very often because Matteo was kind enough to translate that for us. And so thank Mm -hmm. you again for that. Shout out to Matteo. Yeah. Uh, and on Wednesday, Australian dock workers joined the call and blocked Israeli shipping firm Zim from operating at the port of Melbourne. This is the same company the ILWU successfully forced out of multiple West Coast ports in 2014. 
And then, I mean, in the UK, we've talked a little bit about the UK, but this is a, a slightly different story where the state has really cracked down on the speech and been incredibly brutal. Union leaders from the RMT, the National Education Union, and the Fire Brigades Union announced their unions will join the massive protest demanding an end to the UK government's complicity with the genocide. These actions are a demonstration of just a fraction of the power workers have when we act together. We have to keep escalating our protests and our blockade actions. As the song says, quote, without our brain and muscle, not a single wheel can turn. I mean, I think we need to consistently remember that. We're not powerless. And unless we stand united, we can't fight to defeat the governments in this murderous drive to genocide the Palestinian people. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. I think that's beautifully put. And well, I just, just like want to reiterate that, right? That, that, um, that is, I think our greatest task right now, all of us, right? Is to, uh, remind people and convince them and assure them that, that we are not powerless in this, right? I know it feels that way because like everything else in this goddamn country, right? It feels like the population, uh, the majority of the population is on one side and, you know, like a handful of power brokers uh, who control our political system are on the other side. And, you know, like, you know, Biden clearly is just, I mean, I, I have so many thoughts on how Biden is mishandling this um, from, you know, just, just, Acting as a mouthpiece for Israeli propaganda, repeating unfounded, uh, unverified uh, claims from the IDF uh, as the president of the United States. It's almost like the IDF has just been feeding him shit like, you know, beheaded babies, whatever. And then, like, he'll just regurgitate it. And this will just and that's exactly what they want. And, like, the, the, the damage that that does is incalculable um but it is obviously contributing to the the mass slaughter that we are seeing in gaza and israel has made it exceedingly clear after biden and blinken like kind of politely asked them to like hey could you stop killing so many civilians as you're going after hamas and netanyahu and israel said no fuck you and now the u.s like has no real hand to play there. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, because we have just been endlessly supporting this uh, uh, fascist apartheid regime even long before Netanyahu came to power, um, that now it's like if we try to kind of turn around, it's like if you keep, I don't know, this is probably a bad like analogy, but I'm just like, if you just keep spoiling, you know, like your, your kid and then suddenly you try to tell them no, they're going to say, fuck you. They're going to throw a tantrum. They're not going to listen to you. I mean, like, that's kind of the situation here, but blown up to a geopolitical, uh, genocidal scale. Like, you know, what incentive does Israel have right now to listen to Biden and Blinken? Like, and, and what incentive do any of us have to believe that they are actually serious in calling for, you know, like a, a, they're not calling for a ceasefire, but they're calling for, again, just try to, you know, maybe not bomb so many hospitals and schools. And that clearly isn't gonna, gonna happen. Like Israel has made it clear every single day that they are not trying to save any hostages. They're not trying to just get quote unquote Hamas. Uh, they are trying to mow the lawn. They are, they are taking their chance, their opportunity that they've been waiting for, for decades to get rid of every fucking Palestinian in mm -hmm. Gaza and take it over and turn it into a beachside resort, um, under Israeli rule. I mean, it was already under Israeli rule practice. Like uh, before it was just an 
an open-air concentration camp for over 2 million uh, Palestinians in a 22-by-5-mile stretch of land. So, like... They've killed a bunch of their own hostages. They've killed hostages that are American citizens. Like, they don't give a shit. And and The Guardian reported earlier this week that Netanyahu was offered um, a, a, a deal for hostage exchange for, like, a five-day ceasefire about a month ago, and he turned it down flat. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So, like, I mean, it's it's... It's obvious to anyone who is watching this, like what is happening, and and it feels like so frustrating and and debilitating that that the people in power are not listening to us, and this is why I think like looking at this from you know a labor perspective is so important, right? Because this is the situation that working people since time immemorial have been in, right? You know, like feeling as if they had no, we have no power to change our circumstances, that we are solely, as Kurt Vonnegut would say, the listless playthings of enormous forces that control our lives, control our livelihoods, control our shifts, our wages, uh, so on and so forth, and that we just have to accept whatever is given. But Long before there were things called unions, working people realized that if they stand up for themselves and if they stand up together, they actually can challenge that hierarchical power. They actually can do something to change their collective and individual circumstances, and that is a message that we all need to remember right now. Right. That mm-hmm. that um, as Nelson Mandela says, like, you know, it, it um, always seems impossible until it is done. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, so, you know, like we have to keep pushing and we have to keep uh, looking for ways that regular people can actually unite our collective power to put the kind of pressure on, you know, the powers that be to make to end this goddamn madness. And so you listening to this are not. Powerless. I mean, none of us is going to do this alone, but together we actually can do something, uh, and we got to keep the pressure up. It can't just be like go to one rally and then be like, all right, I did my part. No, like every second counts right now. Every minute more Palestinians are dying. More bombs are being dropped on Gaza. Like there were tanks surrounding more hospitals in Gaza City last night. I mean, like these humanitarian pauses, quote unquote, four hours a day, mm-hmm. uh, like that. Yeah, that, that's bullshit. Absolute bullshit. And it's not even about getting aid into Gaza for people who are besieged by this offensive where more bombs are being dropped than we have seen anywhere in the world in the 21st century. Like it is, this is like Dresden or, or uh, Stalingrad level uh, annihilation from the air. Mm-hmm. Um, and the four hour humanitarian pauses, those aren't meant to kind of like provide water and uh, basic like, you know, uh, uh, supplies for people in Gaza. It's, it's like opening PR. the bathtub drive well yeah it's opening the bathtub drain it's like we're gonna bomb the shit out of you open the gates for four hours and like you guys got to get the fuck out right because Uh like that that's basically the incentive is just get out or you're gonna be bombed and killed Mm -hmm. because again we want to mow the lawn and take control of this land once and for all well, and that, you know, phrase that you're using, Modalon, is actually not one of your own creation, but one actually of Israeli creation for many times where they have used this uh, this terminology to kind of just describe the genocide. And I mean, we really cannot let Joe Biden off the hook here because it's like someone saying, oh, I can't do anything. And then they ha- they like keep handing money over to this this uh, entity that keeps doing this violence. Oh, they my- could literally stop all of the money. They could. It's like, oh, I'm, I'm my hands are tied. 
aside bullshit. It's not even just money. We're just directly sending them Abrams tanks. Every time Hamas blows them up, we're like, here's some more. Anyway, we have no idea how to solve this conflict. It's uh, it's disgraceful. But as long as we're talking about the kinds of effects that worker power can have, uh, it's probably worth transitioning to our next uh, follow-up story. This is not directly related to the Israel-Palestine conflict, but this is a fairly big story. Uh, because just days before there was a strike deadline of Friday, November 10th, uh, this week, the Las Vegas Culinary Union announced tentative agreements with each of the major casino firms. And that means that they are going to hold off on the potential strike until after workers vote on whether the tentative agreements are sufficient or if the 35,000 hospitality workers who make the Vegas Strip run will have to walk out to fight for more. So first, on Wednesday, the union announced that they'd reached a deal with Caesars Entertainment, one of the largest casino operators on the Strip. Union leadership said the deal came after a marathon 20-hour bargaining session to start the week. The proposed five-year deal covers 10,000 workers, nearly a third of the total membership. Caesars operates several casinos, including Caesars Forum, Caesars Palace, Flamingos, Harrah's, Horseshoe, Paris, Planet Hollywood, The Cromwell, and The Link. So far, few details of the agreement have been released ahead of the ratification vote, as we do sometimes see. However, the union has said the contract won the largest wage increase in the union's history, along with reduced workload quotas, expanded on-the-job safety protections, and more recall rights. Union members will also be able to picket in support of non-union restaurant workers on the casino's properties. And later that same day, the union announced that they'd also reached an agreement with another of the major operators, MGM. The new deal is also for five years and covers about 25,000 workers across MGM's eight casinos per News 3 Las Vegas. So at 2 a.m. Friday morning, the union announced that they had reached a deal with the last of the big three casino operators, Win Las Vegas, meaning that the strike plan to start Friday would be called off while workers review the agreements and vote. And we did hear in a press release the union listed the following wins. Winning the largest wage increase ever negotiated in the history of the culinary union. Hell yeah. Reducing, yeah, really big. Reducing workload and steep housekeeping room quotas, mandating daily room cleaning, and establishing the right for guest room attendants to securely work in set areas. Providing the best on-the-job safety protections for all classifications, including safety committees. Expanding the use of safety buttons to more workers. Penalties if safety buttons don't work. Enforcing mandatory room checks for employee and public safety. And tracking sexual harassment, assault, and criminal behavior by customers. Which is wild that they did not have that already. Well, and it's also so important just because, I mean, safety of these workers, I mean, this is Las Vegas, so mm-hmm. people are obviously feeling kind of kind of wild doing whatever they're, you know, it's a kind of a party atmosphere. I mean, may, I don't know. Maybe I'm, I haven't been to Las Vegas. That's maybe just my personal view from the outside. But I assume <laughs> that that sort of thing isn't uncommon in a place like that. I mean, I've been to yeah. a casino that wasn't in Las Vegas, and the amount of like entitled old person behavior I saw in there was off the charts. I can't imagine if you're actually in Nevada. Las Vegas is a very, very fascinating place, right? <laughs> because like, I grew up in in Orange County, California, and like, and and I also grew up uh, in that very unique kind of bizarre and retrospect period in the 90s where Vegas was trying to be the family destination. Um, and so it was actually like we used to go like people in Southern California. It's a, it's like a ritual like 
people just go to Vegas in the summer. I mean, it's a four and a half hour drive through the desert. Um, and you know, like, like we loved it as kids, we would pile into the car, we'd go down. It was like the Rugrats movie, right? Where they, <laughs> the, back in the nineties where they, they drive through the desert and they get to Vegas. Like that spoke to me and my brother so much. Cause that was us piling into the car and going, uh, trekking through the desert for four hours. But, um, you know, I say that to say that a lot in Vegas has actually changed, right? Uh, since then, because in the nineties, uh, the, the resorts, you know, were, were bustling. Um, but it was, like I said, a very, uh, family, more family oriented place so every hotel had massive pool facilities massive arcades there were all types of like more sort of like general entertainment for mm -hmm. for um, people of all ages um, then that kind of sh started shifting back in the in the 2000s then of course you had the, the the financial crash in 2008 and you had COVID. So like Vegas itself has gone through some really interesting uh, changes of late, but I want to just kind of focus on that last one because um, I guess if folks are curious to hear more about this from, from some of the uh, workers there, I, I interviewed Matthew Seavers from culinary, uh, the culinary union 226 um, that we're talking about here for my segment on breaking points, the art of class war. That was a couple, maybe about about a month ago. So I'd highly recommend folks check that out. Matthew is a, is a bartender at the Bellagio. He's worked in Vegas uh, for many years. He was working at a non-union hotel before COVID. And so he spoke to the sort of like differences that he himself has experienced in the industry before and after COVID-19. And I give all this kind of background to say that, like, as people listening to this probably remember, because they listen to this show, um, you know, no other union suffered as many job losses and furloughs than Unite Here did at the onset of COVID-19, which makes sense, right? Because if you were primarily a hotel and hospitality service union, uh, when a deadly global pandemic uh, kind of just throws the world upside down, uh, people are not going to be staying in hotels. They're not going to be eating at buffets. And so like Unite Here just got almost entirely decimated in 2020 and um, since then have been kind of clawing their way back. But you know, as we know, via the, the the kind of doctrine of disaster capitalism, right? Capitalists never let a good crisis go to waste. And the hotel industry, particularly in uh, Las Vegas, but not exclusively, because let's not forget, Unite Here members in Los Angeles have been mm -hmm. striking for months and they didn't get nearly as mm -hmm. much uh, media attention as SAG after the WGA or so on and so forth. But what Matthew Seavers kind of and I talked about on that Breaking Point segment was like, you know, um, yes, you know, like we are back, like Vegas is bustling, people are coming back, there's a lot of activity here, you know, um, the, the, the number of rooms that are being booked is still significantly lower than it was this time in 2019, but the hotels are charging significantly more for each of those rooms, and so they are still raking in record profits, even though they have uh, lower hotel bookings, but also they have record profits because they have, again, taken this opportunity opportunity to, um, you know, one of the, you mentioned that, that the right to recall, you know, right to return to your job if you mm -hmm. are furloughed is a major sticking point for the union because a lot of hotels tried to do that after COVID. They were like, oh, we got to shut down. Oh, we're only going to hire some of you back now that, you know, like COVID is quote unquote over. Um, so that is a constant struggle with these mega uh, hotel resorts um, like, like MGM, Wynn, Caesars, 
Um, but there are also other interesting nuances that Matthew and I kind of talked about and that I've talked about with other hospitality workers, for instance, right? Um, and actually, Culinary 226 released a really great report that I would highly recommend folks check out, like kind of looking at the changes in the industry over the past year. But one example I would give is like the one change that we've noticed, I think anyone who's traveled since, you know, uh, 2020, is that room service is no longer automatic. Right. Um, you have to request it in most places. Right. And so that means a number of things. Right. It means uh, fewer tips for workers. It means less kind of predictable uh, schedules as they're moving their way through these hotels. And if you're in Las Vegas, those hotels are fucking massive. Mm -hmm. They're like mini cities unto themselves. Um, but also another sort of like under acknowledged thing is like if you are having people stay in these hotels and room service is not automatic. Um, so you have like a per one person or a family staying in a room for three, four days, and then they check out and then uh, ho a clean uh, uh, um, housekeeping has to go in there and clean it. That's going to take significantly longer because you've accrued four days worth of shit in that room. Yep. And, and so like you, you, again, it, 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 it has this kind of variability that translates on a day to day uh, shift for people in that industry to, um, you know, very, very less than ideal work conditions, less take-home pay because uh, the, 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 they've also been seeing their wages uh, stagnate, if not go down, as cost of living and inflation continue to rise, as, corp as the profits of their employers continue to balloon, so on and so forth. So anyway, that was a long sort of aside, but I just wanted to sort of like kind of emphasize for folks that that like the hospitality industry since COVID is really looking different uh, in, in crucial ways. Mm -hmm. And it's not just to sort of save money, right? I mean, like there, if you listen to the workers, you'll, you'll kind of hear about, you know, like how these are, these are changing the industry as such to the detriment of workers. So the culinary fight is a really, really important one. Yeah. Absolutely. And I mean, Speaking to that, uh, you said you know they have the right to recall. Just to clarify what that is, I mean they're they're got the right to return to their jobs in the event of another pandemic or economic crisis for three years. So as soon as people are laid off, they actually are on that on that uh, line to make sure that they can keep their jobs. And I mean, without also the inconsistency of not having the cons like the cleaning of the rooms every day is sometimes. And you said it's not just because of money. But it is also because of money, mm -hmm. because then they can justify laying people off, leaving people short staffed and overworking people when suddenly a surge of, of use comes in and they don't have people there because they've already laid them off and they have no intention of reducing that workload, increasing the amount of pressure on these workers. Yeah, it, that kind of like lean staffing or just in time kind of service model really basically just only generates crises that's about the only thing that it does um, but the bosses don't care because the workers have to handle those crises not them but uh, another thing that the union is saying that the ta contains is that they will be strengthening existing technology protections to guarantee advanced notification when new technology is introduced which would impact jobs require and also require training for new jobs created by technology as well as healthcare and severance pay for workers who are laid off 
because of new technology and the right to privacy from tracking technology introduced by companies, as well as notice of third-party data sharing workers have generated through their work and the right to bargain over technology that tracks location of employees or messaging between workers. So very, very comprehensive uh, technology clause seemingly including included in this TA, to which I only have to say it would seem that they have read Norbert Wiener's uh, letter to Walter Ruther from back in the 50s. <laughs> yeah. Long-time <laughs> listeners of the show know, know our sticking point on that one. And I love that letter. But um, the, last <laughs> thing that they're, <laughs> the, the last thing that they're also announcing is that the TA makes clear that the no-strike clause does not prevent the culinary union from taking action, including strikes against non-union restaurants on the casino property, and gives casino workers the right to respect picket lines. So uh, a little... A little sad to hear that there is still going to technically be a no strike clause, but it is nice that it is extremely limited in scope so that the casinos can't turn around and say, oh, actually, when you pick at this non-union restaurant, you're in violation of our master Mm -hmm. agreement, because that is something that we've seen these casinos and other institutions such as hotels that will often have a restaurant inside them try to pull on a fairly regular basis. Yeah, similar to like the way the Teamsters contract works in that regard, at least from the outside, it kind of looks like because I mean, the Teamsters do have that no no strike clause as well. But they are able to respect picket lines. And we know that as soon as one shows up, you see the trucks turning around. And that's exactly what we're likely to see with these culinary workers when there are strikes and pickets at, you know, any of their, you know, union siblings or even just non-union pickets uh, there. They're going to have the right to go ahead and not not work in those circumstances. Absolutely. And in the union's press release, we heard from Artemisia Orozco, a 15-year union member and guest room attendant at Wynn, who said, quote, I'm so proud that we were able to win a reduced workload for all guest room attendants at the Wynn, wage increases, and protecting our health insurance and pension benefit. I feel so happy that I am able to have a more manageable workload so that I can go home and have energy to spend time with my family. And with this new contract, I'll have more money in my pocket. End quote. Great quote. Really love to hear that stuff. And especially that they're getting, you know, that they're protecting their pension. That's not something that was like really highlighted in the initial TA announcement. Uh, And maybe that just means that it's kind of like assumed that this union is always looking out for the pension. And if that's the case, I mean, what a great thing, because too many... Too many workers in this country are on scam 401ks or just don't have any retirement benefits. Yeah. And also them having more time with their family. Always one of the major, major goals of any of these actions, because so often the capitalists would love us to just live live in these workplaces. And Mm -hmm. uh, that's just unacceptable. We're people. We deserve the right to to have families and have a life. I mean, a big example that comes to mind is the rail workers, where they sometimes see their families like two days a month or something mm -hmm. like that. But yeah, workers in all sectors suffer from this. I mean, I'll I'll be I'll be honest with you guys. Like, um, I mean, because I think that that's a really really important point, and it's something that like I have been harping on as well for. It feels like years now. I, I, I really feel like this started cropping up more, or at least I started noticing it more in 2021, right? Because that's when uh, I remember going down to Bessemer, Alabama to talk to uh, Amazon workers there who were, you know, as we know, trying to unionize with the RWDSU um, and a whole lot of shenanigans uh, with Amazon there trying uh, illegally, you know, uh, uh, trying to thwart the union drive and successfully, I'm sad to say, uh, thwarting that union drive. But 
you know, I it, it was really I remember driving my ass down to Alabama. Because yeah, this is a quick aside, but like I think I've told you guys this that um, you know we were at a we were at a very low point in the real news at that moment in in January of 2021. Uh, I had started in October of 2020. Like three weeks after I started, we lost like half of our funding and half of our staff, and I was like, "What the fuck did I just leave my old job to come to?" Like. What are we going to do? It was like the vaccines weren't out yet. COVID was still happening. Like everything seemed really, really fucking dire. Um, and then I, you know, like, and, and at that time I knew that Danny Glover, the Danny Glover was on the Real News board. Uh, he'd done a lot of stuff with the Real News in the past. And I've been trying to connect with him uh, through his assistant for since I started basically. And uh, Danny's an incredibly busy guy. It was, it was, it was not happening. But then I saw an announcement that he was going to be in best. Um, and so I actually had our dearly departed brother, Eddie Conway, call Danny's assistant for me. And he was like, so Danny's assistant said, if you can get down to Alabama in like the next 15 hours, he'll give you an interview at the RWDSU Mid-South uh, uh, headquarters in Birmingham. And I was like, okay, shit. So like, I, I like, you know, <laughs> I couldn't take, I couldn't take anyone with me because again, it was still COVID. We didn't, uh, mm-hmm. we were still remote. Um, you know, and, and so I, the studio team put together like a kit for me and I, I had no goddamn clue how to use it, but they did their best and they were like, okay, you're going to have to take this. You're going to have to record and interview them at the same time. Here's how you set it up. So anyway, I'm driving down to Alabama for 13 hours and I just made it and I just got uh, there in time to interview Danny Glover. Uh, and, and I shot him out of focus. <laughs> so like you can, the, the podcast is great. But if you watch the video, it's like a, a blur that looks and sounds like Danny Glover. And I'm just, I'll never forgive myself for that. But the point is, is when I was driving and trying to kind of calm my nerves, I was listening to other interviews with Amazon workers in Bessemer and I, and particularly ones uh, on the Valley labor report. And I started to really like, it really hit me how folks there were talking about never getting to see their families. Um, and, and because not only are they, you know, working these grueling hours and grueling shifts, but when they get home, they're so dead tired that they can't do anything. They can't even throw a ball around with their kids because their shoulders are, are so sore and their legs are so sore. Their back hurts so much and they don't even make enough to, to take their kids on a vacation to see the beach for the first time. Like that really, I remember that really impacting me as I was driving, uh, to Alabama. And then like, I started noticing how much that same talking point was cropping up in so many different struggles. Like I remember, uh, just to give one example, interviewing, uh, Sherry Renfro, a worker at Frito-Lay when they were on strike in Topeka, Kansas. And she talked to me about how she remembers, uh, management walking or new hires around the plant and showing them uh, the the sort of restroom or the rec room where workers could take their breaks, and they were selling it as a positive. They're like, "Oh, you could have your family come in uh, to the visitation room here, and you could like hang out with them on your shifts." Uh-huh. And like Sherry, I remember her telling me she was like, "Well, that sounded nice at first, but then I started to think, where have I heard that term before?" Yeah, it's prison. And she's like, "And how how are you how are you selling it?" As a as a a, a a positive that the only time that we can see our family awake 
is to have them come in and to this visitation room for 15, 20 minutes during our shift because we're working forced overtime. We're missing all these all these times with our parents, our grandparents, our kids who are growing up too fast. We're missing all that time. And I've heard that from the railroad workers. I've heard that from auto workers. I've heard that from hospital workers. I mean, like, it is just insane that we are working so much and producing so much value and have such little quality of life for the vast amount of working people in this country while making untold profits for our goddamn employers. So it really does come back down to that of like, we deserve to live. We deserve to have more of a life uh, because there's more to life than just working and 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 just making a wage just so you can keep a roof over your head and i think more and more people are reaching that point of exhaustion and saying there there has to be more to life than this so like that's like the existential burning core at the center of so many workers' struggles that we have been covering across our two shows for years now. Yeah, very mm-hmm. very well said, Max. That uh, that that um the the family visitation room kind of prison situation reminds me that people were just remarking this week that the new Amazon uh facility in the Netherlands is actually one of the original panopticons that has been converted from a, you know, a circular panopticon jail into co-working spaces. So Wow. Yeah. Really fucked vibes happening uh, right now. That's that's way too on the nose, man. (laughs) Wow. That's way too on the nose. Yeah. So, I mean, to transition to our next story, I mean, as workers continue to rise up in huge numbers and demand fair raises to account for the huge surge in cost of living, this week, public workers in Quebec staged a massive one-day walkout of 420,000 public employees on Monday, November 6th, to demand exactly that. The common front of public employees includes four major union federations, including the, the CSQ, the CSN, FTQ, and APTS, who launched a massive walkout in protest of the provincial government's latest lowball contract proposal. 95% of the membership voted in favor of the strike and possible future escalations. We are constantly seeing 90 plus percent strike authorization votes. It's every week, folks. <laughs> every single time. It's awesome. Yeah. These workers cover vital services all over Quebec from health services, from health care to education to social services and are demanding the Quebec government increase the offer of a paltry 10% raise over five years. And just wow. Uh, And instead of a measly 2% per year, which would definitely not keep up with inflation, uh, much less, I mean, the recent surge in inflation, which has really diminished worker wages, the union has proposed a 20% raise over three years, as reported by CBC. This much more reasonable increase of about 6% per year would actually help the workers keep up with inflation and you know just so that they can continue to work to live where they actually work yeah and despite the fact that this is such an improved offer what the union is turning around and saying in response to the government it's still basically a defensive demand against inflation like this doesn't really represent that much of a wage increase when you take into account that like inflation could easily be in the mid single digits for the next decade 
Yeah, and it can be so hard as a public worker to not be on that defensive end. We have mm-hmm. seen some more offensive moves, and we don't, I mean, there's still more to cover in this, but I mean, there's also a ton of people joining these actions. But Quebec Treasury Board President uh, Sonia Lebel said on social media, quote, the pressure tactics used by the unions belong to them, but if they are dissatisfied with our offer, they must table a constructive counteroffer in due form. A negotiation is not a one-way street, end quote. And, like, this is, I mean, obviously this is ridiculous. In response, uh, as a re- as reported by the Montreal Gazette, Magali Picard, president of the FLQ, said, quote, 10% over five years is an insult. The message from the Common Front is clear. If you want a counteroffer, start by giving us a real offer, end quote, which I think is so true when you're saying, oh, it's not a one-way street. You offered 10%, 2% over, 2% each year over five years. It, that is not an offer. That is That is an attack. Yeah, I offered to kick you in the teeth and you just didn't accept that. So clearly you're not negotiating in good faith here. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely ridiculous. And uh, Laura Blinsky, a Montreal teacher, spoke with CBC reporters on the picket line during the walkout saying, quote, we care about these kids so much, but the reality is there is only so much we can do. The needs are high, but the support is low. The well-being of the kids is really in jeopardy because of the situation that we are being put in every day, end quote. Very, very true. I mean, we see this from teachers all over. It's teachers and nurses, especially. They're always looking out for like kids and patients. And it's, you know, the media will try to spin it exactly the opposite way. And it's just, it's always the hard, one of the hardest labor related lies for me to swallow is that these people don't care about their students or, or the, the people in their care. Mm-hmm. Well, and like, you know, I just uh, also want to like really uh, highlight for folks um, that, you know, some uh, some stuff has really been going down in Canada mm-hmm. over the past couple years. And uh, I was actually in Montreal. Um, God, when was that? It was that was earlier this year um, in the spring, I believe, for the Canadian Labor Congress. And I was interviewing folks there for the Real News, and I published like a bunch of those interviews on working people as well, just trying to get a sense of like where the the labor movement was in Canada. Um, and you know, as as any of the the folks on the ground will say, is like we've we've still got a lot of work to do. Um, you know, like we there's a lot of militancy from like the U.S. and beyond that nece- that isn't necessarily translating. So like it's not always a one to one thing like that. What's happening here is happening up there. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, let us not forget that uh, education workers in Ontario in 2022 uh, led a really historic and valiant uh, um, and defiant uh, effort to oppose Doug Ford's like draconian efforts to like basically like prevent them from striking uh, the bill that he was putting forward. I think would have fined uh, education workers four thousand dollars a day for striking, and they defied him anyway. And they got Doug Ford to back down. It was one of the most kind of like significant strikes in Canadian uh, history, uh, and it was a really brave thing that people did. And and the community showed up like they they would not back down. But then. And also, there was the federal workers' strike uh, earlier this year, um, which I, I believe was the largest federal workers' strike in Canada, Canadian history. So, like, 
You know, there is something happening up there, uh, too, and I would encourage folks to kind of, you know, show solidarity as much as you can because uh, judging by the folks that I talk to there, they're a lot. the folks in labor are very excited about what they're seeing happening here, but they don't always feel like they are part of the same movement. And mm-hmm. I think it's it's our job, and you guys are doing a great job here by talking about all of the these labor stories in the same breath. It's our job to show uh, folks how they are, in fact, connected. Yeah, yeah. Thank, thanks so much, Max, for giving us not only that context, but also the compliment, because we, we do really try to bring the international <laughs> side of this in. But to uh, continue with the story, other workers who spoke with CBC expressed frustration that the low wage means that they have to work one or even two other jobs to make ends meet. Healthcare workers pointed to a similar crisis of understaffing and burnout that we see all over the United States. And I mean, this is, I mean, when it comes to public workers, you want these necessary services to be good services. And yet these workers are forced to work additional jobs, meaning that their ability to do things is split. Like, Mm -hmm. people should one job should be enough and that demand has been uh, said many many times but uh dalla casano um medical image tech at uh told cbc quote you're practically living here at the hospital you don't see many people you're always tired you're always working but we love our jobs so we do what we can end quote and then again more just echoes of so many healthcare workers all over who care so much about doing these jobs while these administrators and also i mean in this case you know the, the government here just saying uh Sorry, that doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. At a press conference after the walkout, union leaders pressed the government to provide a serious and fair offer, or they said strikes would escalate. A three-day walkout from 1121 to 1123 is planned if the government's offer does not improve. And this is a, you know, we're seeing this kind of thing happen more and more where the unions or the workers in general are saying like, look, this is what we're doing right now, but this is the next thing. And, uh, you know, if you're not ready by that point, we'll have a a next next thing ready as well. And it's bigger. Yeah, that's bigger and going to cause you way more of a headache. So these 420,000 public workers aren't the only ones standing up in Quebec either. On Wednesday, November 8th, 80,000 healthcare workers with the FIQ Healthcare Union launched a two-day strike with similar demands. Christina Huare, VP of the union, told CBC that the lowball offer from the government, quote, really are insulting to healthcare workers. We've been talking about it for years that our working conditions are far from ideal. We work long hours with very high patient ratios. It's really important that we all stick together and that we fight for better working conditions because at the end of the day, it gives better care to the population. End quote. I mean, yeah, yeah ex- correct. Ex- Nailed it. Exactly what I was just saying. We say that on the show all the time. It's like, you know, better conditions for workers mean better conditions for everyone. Patients, students, customers, even in some ways at the end of the day, bosses and managers. But we don't really care about them. So that's not really the point. (laughs) That's right. Collateral. That's collateral benefits. Benefits. Yeah, Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So these healthcare workers have already announced their intent to strike for two more days as well on 11:23 and 11:24 alongside the rest of the public workers if the government does not improve its offer quickly. With over half a million public workers out at once, it's looking like a true general strike of public workers in Quebec is really and genuinely on the table at this time. So definitely keep an eye on Quebec and and keep your Google Translate uh, France 
Francais Quebecois to English uh, handy because you might need it. That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, and as we continue our international coverage, we need to talk about Tesla. So Elon Musk has famously vowed to not allow a union at Tesla factories in the U.S., a statement (laughs) that... Sorry, it's just famously not up to him, so that's how it is, dog. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I mean, that statement has swiftly been challenged in the wake of the historic and inspiring stand-up strike by the UAW and Big Three automakers, but pressure, pressure on Tesla isn't just coming from inside the U.S. As the Wall Street Journal reported this week, Tesla is feeling the heat from unions in Europe. Hell management yeah. at Tesla management at Tesla's factory outside Berlin have been forced to grant production workers significant wage increases because of surging pressure from union organizing uh, from a union organizing drive by the massive IG Metall. I don't know how to say that in German. They're the union there, the the metal mm-hmm. workers basically. IG Metall uh, is the largest industrial union in Europe with over 2.25 million members uh, and is stor- and its storied history includes leading the charge to win the 35-hour work week in 1995. Wow, way to go, (laughs) IG Metal. Yes, bro. (laughs) That's right. That's right. And Tesla remains the only major automaker in Europe that isn't unionized. Oh, I hate referring to them as a major automaker. They're a major finance corporation. They don't make that many fucking cars. (laughs) That's that's true. That's true. (laughs) Musk Musk himself visited the factory to try to convince workers not to unionize, promising to build the next generation of Tesla vehicles (laughs) for Europe at the plant. On Monday, managers announced raises of 4% for all 11,000 workers at the plant, as well as an immediate 1,500 euro bonus. An additional 2,500 euro per year raise will arrive in February for all production workers. All this is on top of the 6% raise that workers have already received in just a year and a half since the factory opened in March of last year. Mm, and echoes of Toyota running around saying, hey, please don't unionize. We we see what's happening with the TAs at the big three. Exactly. Oh, I, I absolutely love this. Like, I'm sure you guys have been hearing this from, from folks within the UAW as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the, the amount of people at, you know, Hyundai and Tesla who are reaching out, um, you know, a- after watching the stand-up strike is just so exciting to me because, like, yeah, first of all, fuck these companies mm-hmm. and, and fuck Elon Musk especially. But, I mean, like, they're, they're, this, is, this is shows how and why the, the 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 shop floor struggles these collective workers struggles like bear directly on our society and on our future right i mean because obviously we're talking in the midst of a climate uh disaster i mean we are rapidly ensuring that we will not have a livable planet for our children i mean like that the, it ain't over till it's over and we got to fight. So like the EV transition is huge. And the UAW made a really, you know, strong push to be, you know, like uh, to, to ensure that like these companies could not continue to undercut labor standards. But through that transition, like bringing the sort of battery plants under the master agreement mm-hmm. was like a seismic development in the UAW. 
Because, I mean, go check out Luis Feliz Leon's reporting on uh, some of those uh, uh, battery plants, the conditions there. I mean, this is what happens when, you know, like these companies are just like, oh, yeah, we're we're all about a green transition, but we're going to like, you know, create these facilities that significantly undercut the labor standards in our auto manufacturing plants to date. Um, and, And so like as the UAW has made that push and has ensured that like the EV transition will and involve more uh, uh, of the union side uh, and the union will have more of a say in what that transition looks like. Um, You know, Tesla, I think, is shitting its pants not only over the prospect of its own workers unionizing, but Tesla's market share in the EV market has been going down. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, you you rightly mentioned that that, that Musk and Tesla, you know, like, uh, uh, they get misconstrued in, like, what they actually do and and where their money actually comes from but in terms of the ev market tesla was dominant and and uh up until this year and i think now it's market share has finally gone below 50 Mm percent and so like uh as more auto manufacturers auto manufacturers kind of uh pivot to ev tesla is going to be under a lot of pressure there and it's not going to have the benefit of like saying that like we are the dominant force in this market um so like this is all part of the battle for the future it's not a battle that has been won by any means but i fucking love seeing elon musk lose (laughs) all this money and and like (laughs) these these auto manufacturers shit their pants because they thought they had won Mm -hmm. Uh i mean look at the look at the nissan you know the what was it the famous nissan union drive uh in tennessee Mm-hmm. I mean, like, I mean, they they thought they had won and and managed to establish an anti a non union auto manufacturing stronghold in the South and that was never going to be challenged. Tesla was so f- convinced that it was never going to have to deal with uh, unions in its own manufacturing uh, plants. I mean, like, but but workers fighting within the UAW have like really I think turned the tides there. So that's really that's a that's a bit of good news to to celebrate. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, workers in the UAW just utter changed the landscape by accomplishing these TAs and like we don't we don't even know how everything's going to shake out on that yet but um yeah I mean continuing with what Tesla's been doing uh in addition to handing out these raises they've also been working overtime to try and fend off IG Metal organizers so the union stepped up its public organizing work in October holding protests uh 24/7 outreach at plant gates and lunchtime plant visits the union is also organizing workers for election to the plant's legally mandated works council which takes part in setting working conditions other than wages and in response to all of this organizing the company offered work a free lunch on the same day and handed out t-shirts <laughs> and less, less than a month later it's such a musk ass thing to do less than a month later these major wage increases have been added on top ig metal has been working to organize the plant since before it even opened its gates so props to them and has at least 1000 supporters at the plant this is the clear and obvious reason why musk a famously cheap boss would throw so much money at his german employees tesla issued a statement claiming the exact opposite however quote claims that there is a connection between tesla's salary adjustments and union activities are untrue end quote (laughs) but the facts speak for themselves also just like 
Uh, my claims that there is a connection between unions, <laughs> between Tesla's salary adjustments and unions' activities are untrue. T-shirt has people asking a lot of questions already answered by my shirt. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And we we've talked about this so many times about how union struggle and collective struggle is the tide that lifts the boats. It is the mm-hmm. thing that actually you know creates the momentum for these these people because they would not give these raises if they didn't feel like no. they had to. They absolutely wouldn't. No, it, it's what I say on this show from time to time is that the opposite of Reaganomics is true. That's it. You help people who have the least, it actually helps everyone. It's That's how it works. Um, but yeah, so uh, Dick Schulze, uh, sorry for mispronunciation of your German name, IG Metal regional director in charge of the drive, said that the workers need guaranteed raises and benefits that only a union contract can provide. He also pointed out that Tesla workers make significantly less than union auto workers in Europe, telling the Wall Street Journal, quote, if you compare annual wages, there is a big gap between Tesla and our union workers at Porsche, BMW, Audi, VW, Daimler, and Ford. End quote. This is similar to the situation in the U.S., where Tesla workers make total compensation, which is barely over half of what UAW workers will receive if the new contracts are ratified. Meanwhile, Tesla is also facing more pressure in Sweden, where the company is facing its first ever formal strike. 590 mechanics and technicians organized with Swedish industrial union IF Metal. These European Union naming conventions are pretty creative, have launched a strike to demand the company negotiate a collective bargaining agreement as reported by On Labor. These workers service Teslas at the company's repair shops across the country. Now, IF Metal has been trying for over five years to get the company to sign a bargaining agreement with its members, but when the company broke off all negotiations, citing corporate policy refusing to sign union agreements anywhere in the world, the workers had clearly had enough. Starting on Friday, November 3rd, just under 600 mechanics and techs across every repair shop in the country are refusing to work on any Tesla vehicles. And what a policy! He- like, oh, we, yeah. we vow to yeah. break the law literally everywhere. We literally don't care what the law is wherever we set up. This is what we do. But also... Um, well, this, well, just uh, uh, just wanted to like say like something that this reminds me of is like, I remember when I was a waiter uh, in Chicago at Reza's and like Reza's is a good restaurant the one downtown everyone loves but the 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 other smaller uh franchises um not so much and I happened to work at the one in Lincoln Park that was op- that the managed by Reza's like dipshit younger brother okay. who was a cor- who was a corrupt asshole uh who would steal money from the till he would write IOUs to us for our tips like day in day out uh, and I remember one week I had five IOUs and I had no money in my account and I was like I'm not leaving here until I get my tips cuz I need to buy groceries and they were like oh you just go in the back and eat some chicken kubata i was like motherfucker i've been eating chicken kubata like all week i need my own food but anyway the reason i bring it up is like i remember uh working uh one week i worked 85 hours um because it was like i think thanksgiving week everyone else was gone my brother was gone so i was like fuck it i'm just gonna work as much as i can and try to make some money um and so i when i got my paycheck it was only for 40 hours. And uh-huh. I was like, hold on a second. I was like, you guys kept assigning me. And I kept saying like, okay, I'll do overtime. Where's my overtime? And the manager was just like, oh, we don't, we don't do that. And I was like, you don't have a fucking choice, motherfucker. <laughs> yeah. Like you don't get, you, you think you're the only boss 
that just can like that came up with the brain genius idea of like oh we just won't pay people overtime everyone else can do it if they wish but we're, that's not our policy it's like that's, it's not a policy it's a law mm-hmm. like you have to follow it you can't just say we're, we're as a company policy we're not going to sign union contracts with workers anywhere in the world like uh, uh, sure, that's a nice aspiration, but you don't get to to, to make that call, motherfucker. Yeah. Like that's why we have labor laws. But it's wild because like these these heads of corporations, especially in the United States, but around the world, like have just become accustomed to being allowed to break the law. Because what do they face? They face like uh, a toothless labor board. They face like SEC fines that are that are you know dismissible fractions of their income. They face OSHA regulators who can hand out fines that have maximums in the single digits of thousands sometimes just like pitifully pitifully small uh, uh punishments for for what they do so it's there's a there's a weird balance of like yeah you're not technically allowed to do this but you're also allowed to have in your charter that you're just going to openly flout labor law and we'll just cross that bridge when we get to it elon that's fine um, yeah, so it's, and it's, it's wild. Yeah, yeah, and it's also worth pointing out that this is not a, a small strike in Sweden either, where Tesla is their top-selling car brand. Mm-hmm. Swedish labor law also allows far more expansive legal action in strikes than the U.S. does, bringing the possibility of banning new hires for Tesla mechanics and solidarity strikes from other unions. So, I mean, the, yeah, there's no Taft Hartley in Sweden. In Sweden, mm-hmm. so I mean in and in Sweden, 90% of workers are unionized, making Tesla's extreme anti-union, sta- anti-union stance a major outlier. Yeah, that is kind of interesting to, to, of all countries, to go into a country with 90% union density and be like, oh, we don't sign contracts. Yeah, it, it's it, the, the hubris. The hubris. Yeah, the goddamn hubris. Like, that, that, is, that is like, you know... Greek mythology level hubris. <laughs> yeah. And so while the strike only covers a few hundred workers, the stakes are high as European unions seek to stop Musk from importing US style union busting into the historically more social democratic region. General Secretary of the Union Confederation Industria All. Atla Hoye, sorry if I mispronounced that, in a statement said, quote, Elon Musk's business model is to avoid respecting human rights. Now he is taken <laughs> on by one of our strongest unions. We must defeat the Tesla business model, and Sweden is the best place to start, end quote. And I, that energy is is very good. Just being like, yo, this guy, yo, fuck Elon Musk. Yeah, no, this is, he just said fuck Elon Musk, just mm-hmm. with, with a more elegant phrasing. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, if you actually listen to the audio recording, and this this is wild to me because I always thought this was like a, a you know a, a, a racist stereotype. But the guy sounded exactly like the Swedish chef yes. in Sesame Street. That is one hundred percent true. Oh yep. wow! Sc- it's not. Scandinavian it's not. accents are very pronounced. They do not feel like they have to speak English like like British people or Americans. And you know what? More power to him. <laughs> yeah, I gotta, I gotta hear I, I'm that. Also, I am being tongue-in-cheek, but like, I, I remember like hearing some quotes, and I was like, oh, damn, that is a thick-ass accent. Yeah. Well, I mean, like it's, it's goofy, but that's part of the reason I love watching UAW updates, too, because Sean Fain and Mike Booth come out there with their extremely strong Great Lakes accents, and I'm like, yeah, these are my guys. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh. definitely. I mean, I honestly, uh, when they were doing the Ford announcement, the guy who uh, is uh, who was doing the Ford announcement with uh, Sean 
Sean Fain reminded me a lot of your dad, John. Yeah, he is very much like my dad. Yeah. <laughs> but to get back to the story, on Tuesday, November 7th, we saw just how invested the Swedish labor movement is in fighting Tesla's attacks on workers' rights. Unions across the country announced that they would join the strike against Tesla in solidarity with the mechanics. As reported by the New York Times, maintenance workers will now refuse to clean Tesla factories, electricians will cease to service its charging stations, and dock workers will blockade shipments from the company from entering Swedish ports. Even some businesses, such as Taxi Stockholm, have announced cancellations of orders with Tesla due to its refusal to abide by Swedish labor structures. Like, they are not going to win this. There is no way... One thing about these Scandinavian companies is for better for or countries rather these Scandinavian countries is for better or for worse they are extremely legalist so they love the letter of the fucking law and Elon Musk is about the best candidate I can think of to be a, just a straight bull in a china shop in a situation like this so it'll be interesting to see what the Swedish workers and also like the state and maybe even some businesses uh, have have to say and do about this. Yeah, and I mean, Tesla has tried to keep service stations open by using scab labor, but the strategy seems unlikely to work in the long term as more unions join this strike. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the um, American exception is uh, not going to last, not only just for now, but also in the long term. Uh, This, this, I mean, I'm really excited for these real threats against this ideology of exceptionalism. Yeah, well, and like not 100% related, but I think a lot of countries are feeling more comfortable telling U.S. interests to kind of go fuck themselves since the Monroe Doctrine is basically falling apart. I mean, uh, another t-shirt moment I think of is when... uh, I think it was uh, uh, the, the Secretary of Defense said something like, the Monroe Doctrine is as relevant as it's ever been. And I'm like, great. <laughs> That's a sure sign that it's not. And what a wonderful thing. <laughs> I mean, th- yeah, like it's we're in the midst of of really interesting times here and i guess i'll just i'll get this in because i i may end up having to jump off before we finish just cuz there's there's some movers coming over but just in case like that that is going to really i think be something to watch over the next decade right is like how the world responds to the i mean i whatever terms we want to use for it like a transition from a unipolar world at which the united states uh sits at the top uh to a quote unquote multipolar world um very much up for debate like you know like what those terms are going to mean uh who the players are going to be but you know like it's it's an interesting mix where like us hegemony is receding um at the same time that mili- us military hegemony is not mm-hmm. um but it but it's cultural and economic influence uh are not nece- necessarily what they were they still are really significant but you know as we've seen with bricks as we've seen with like the developments around the world like things are changing at at quite a, a, a rapid pace and the united states is just uh, really careening towards its own imperial demise by get like get you know getting bogged down in the in war after war after war siphoning all the resources out of our fucking society and just giving them straight to military contractors and weapons developers and blah 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 
Um, so like, it's going to be really interesting to see kind of like what that means for labor, what that means for the fight for, uh, you know, to, to mitigate climate change, mm-hmm. uh, as U S hegemony recedes around the world. And like, I just wanted to give a plug to folks, uh, listening to this to check out my boy, Mike Fox, uh, who is a Latin America based radio journalist. He's a phenomenal journalist. Uh, he, he did a big podcast series on Brazil ahead of the elections last year for us. He's working on another one called under the shadow, which is, uh, the entire series is about under the shadow of the Monroe doctrine of us imperialism in Latin America and, and the lingering, uh, sort of effects that, that us imperialism has on politics in, um, the hemisphere today. Um, because it, it, the, yeah, the Monroe doctrine is not what it was. Like we are not doing what we did, uh, a hundred years ago, right. Where, you know, like we're, we're, uh, you know, or, or not a hundred years ago, but what was it? The 1950s mm-hmm. where, like basically on the on behalf of companies like United Fruit, we are waging a CIA led coup in places like Guatemala, um, fabricating like a, a, a communist threat because we don't like the democratic reforms that are expropriating land from our own businesses. So we're going to oust the government. We're going to use our own military to bomb uh, these people, and we're going to install a dictator. Um, this this is this is the level of intervention in the United States. Like so we're we may not be at that uh level of intervention um but i mean it's weird like i mean people in the states republican congressmen are still calling for us to invade mexico oh in china uh, because yeah, yeah it's like it's insane um but anyway i just wanted to plug mike fox's upcoming series and just wanted to to highlight that like there still are lingering residues mm-hmm. of the monroe doctrine that are going to be with us for a while but like they're not going to necessarily be the sort of overarching overriding force right. shaping the landscape in central and south america so now as as gramsci famously said the old world is dying the new one struggles to be born now is the time of, of monsters and weird shit mm-hmm. that's so right we're in the midst of very weird shit Yep, yeah, here there be dragons. But yeah, we are going to return to uh, um, a little bit of a domestic story for our next one where we follow up with Starbucks, which we basically just do every week. So major companies in the United States like Starbucks have also been feeling the pressure of this union upsurge. This week, Starbucks announced yet another round of wage increases to try and fend off the growth of the Starbucks Workers United movement. Workers have already unionized over 360 stores, and the union's next day of action is quickly approaching next week. So in response... Similar to some auto companies we've been talking talking about, Starbucks announced that starting next year, all workers will see raises of 3 to 5%. The company claims that this raise will bring worker pay to 50% higher than 2020 levels and say that they intend to add raises at double that pace in the next two years. The company also says they plan to launch a massive global expansion, raising total stores to over 55,000, an increase of 50% over the present levels. However, once again, there is an enormous catch. The new higher raises will not apply to union stores, which, as we have said on this show, is illegal. That's just straight illegal. So despite the fact that the NLRB has ruled definitively that offering new benefits to non-union employees only is expressly forbidden by the NLRA, Starbucks is continuing to openly flaunt the law. While dragging out their legal appeals endlessly uh, in response to... um, 
uh, complaints filed by the union, Starbucks has stuck to its false claim that it cannot legally offer workers new benefits without breaking status quo. As we previously discussed on the show many times, an NLRB judge has ruled that by only offering benefits to non-union workers, the company was conducting a quote-unquote flagrant corporate-wide attack on its employees' right to choose union representation. But, you know, in the typical corporate manner, of course, they say, actually, we have to break the law because not breaking the law would be breaking the law. So the company continues to plow ahead with this brazenly illegal plan to do the same thing once again. SBWU member Alex Yeager said in a statement from the union, quote, withholding benefits from unionized stores is against the law. We've been speaking out and going on strike for scheduling changes for more than two years, end quote. And this continued extreme union busting from Starbucks just reinforces why it is so important that the working class support SBWU in their organizing efforts to force the company to the bargaining table. In support of that, we'd like to remind folks again about the National Day of Action next Thursday, November 16th. Hundreds of union stores will strike, and workers are asking supporters to join union stores on the picket lines and also to organize actions at non-union stores showing support for workers there and demanding the company respect worker rights. The union has a website for supporters to find or organize an action near them, which, of course, we will put in the episode description. Well, and I just want to like, so this will be the the last thing I'll say as my as my sign off. But it's been phenomenal recording with y'all. Uh, absolutely love the work that y'all are doing. Just anyone listening, please keep supporting this show. Uh, financially support if you can. Share it if you can. We need this kind of reporting um, now more than ever. What I wanted to just say is like my my kind of sign off uh, to people listening is like do everything that you can to support those Starbucks workers, right? Because this is this is a really pivotal fight for all of us, right? I, I've I've yelled about this many many times on my own show and other interviews. We haven't won anything yet. That's what I want to. That's what I want to kind of emphasize for people. A lot of stores have unionized that is incredible none of them have a contract mm-hmm. yet, right and starbucks as you just laid out has been uh, uh, rampaging on a rampaging corporate crime wave in broad daylight since day since day one since buffalo unionized mm-hmm. right and and like it's like we were talking about earlier like i mean clearly very different situations like with with Gaza and Israel, but it's like it's like we're watching uh, something just so egregiously wrong unfold, and the sort of like rules based order, quote unquote, is not helping us. So, like, what do we do? Like, how could a company this powerful uh, and this prominent in the public spotlight be allowed to just get away with violating people's rights so flagrantly? And with like again, not just the shit that you just laid out, like their constant undermining of labor law by offering, you know. Uh, benefits to non-unionized stores and not to the unionized stores, uh, not bargaining in good faith, um, firing workers for the flimsiest of excuses or descheduling them so that they lose their health care uh, and, and, you know, like their lives get turned upside down, closing stores that unionized in D.C. and Ithaca in Seattle. Like th- it is so painfully obvious what they are doing. And the fact that it has not been a national scandal to the point where like you know, like the, the, the public, the government is intervening and saying like, this is wrong. 
wrong and we mm-hmm. need to stop it. Not just bringing Howard Schultz down to Congress and kind of wagging your finger at him, but like forcing them to follow the goddamn law is what needs to happen here. And 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 we are going to have to be the ones who to do that. All right, because for as much uh, um, I hope as I think we all are finding in the um, conclusions of, I mean, granted, the TAs are still out. We still need to see how the membership votes, but you know, the results of the stand-up strike within the UAW at the big three automakers, uh, the results of the Teamsters contract at UPS, mm-hmm. right? The results of the uh, contract w- with uh, Culinary 226 in Las Vegas and these major hotels, right? Um, Hollywood, SAG-AFTRA, WGA, right? I mean, like, these are really crucial struggles, and, and it is so heartening to see so many people who, who supported those struggles throughout the entirety of of the strikes and and so on and so forth. Um, But we need to make sure that we don't forget about the people who are still fighting who have not won yet. Um, You know, like we... Uh, we failed, frankly, the the striking coal miners in uh, at Warrior Met mm-hmm. in Alabama. Like they still are, you know. We can go on for days about where that current like uh, uh, struggle is, but they were on strike for like you know almost two years. Like and and people forgot about them. Uh, Pittsburgh Post Gazette workers have now been mm-hmm. on strike for thirteen months, yep. over a year. And like I've interviewed them many times on the Real News. Because these are our colleagues, these are our these are our you know our industry colleagues that I'm trying to like lift up, and you can just tell how tired and exhausted they are, and and how much it hurts to day in day out to feel like they have been forgotten, and the bosses are using that to apply pressure and hope and like not bargain in good faith, just wait till people leave, and hopefully they can decertify the unions and like achieve their long realized dream uh, uh, of having a non union paper. That's like that's the direction that it's going in, just like the direction. Starbucks is going in is to union bust as much as possible until you choke the union drive in the cradle and suddenly you get no more new union filings. The people who successfully unionized stores in the past all end up leaving for different jobs and you and you keep your operation going without ever having to follow labor law uh, to the letter. And so like we need to be the ones there showing up for Starbucks workers as much as possible for as long as it takes. We need to be there showing up for Pittsburgh Post-Gazette workers. Smaller strikes like uh, uh, Medieval Times in Buena Park, they are still on strike. Um, They've been getting hit on the picket lines by cars, animals uh, in the the performance are reportedly dying from maltreatment Mm -hmm. from non-union workers. I mean, like, uh, right uh, later today, I'm going on uh, the live stream uh, at the Valley Labor Report where they raising money for Mack truck uh, strikers with the UAW uh, and folks with the BCTGM who have also been on strike for for months, right? So, like, um, those are also really important, right? And, and like, you know, we can't just... I, I think we can't just rely on like bigger unions like the Teamsters and the UAW to sort of carry us across the finish line. Like we got to make sure that if we want to see the 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 explosion of worker organizing in areas where um, you know anti that have been anti union strongholds like service industry, right? Um, if we want to see Chipotle workers, dollar store workers, mm-hmm. Starbucks workers, and so on and so forth, like unionize, we need to actually make sure that this campaign at places like Starbucks work. And it's only going to work if we keep the pressure up, keep letting Starbucks know why we won't support them, but we support their workers. Like if, if we just kind of let it fade into the background, they're going to win. The, the bastards are going to win. So please 
don't let the bastards win. Yeah, absolutely. So eloquently. Yeah, thanks said. so much, Max, for joining. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us, Max. And I really just want to encourage everyone to re- check out all of Max's work at the Real News and on Working People. Again, Max, one more time, thank you so much. And we are going to continue our reporting today, and we're going to start. I mean, or, and we're I guess we're going to continue with the uh, as alluded to by Max, the SAG-AFTRA uh, tentative agreement that has just happened after 118 days on strike. So obviously, 2023 has been a monumental year for the U.S. labor movement with historic struggles by the Teamsters at UPS, the UAW at the Big Three, uh, both the WGA and SAG-AFTRA in the film and television business. Just a week after the UAW reached agreements in the stand-up strike, the biggest strike in the country has been suspended as well. On Wednesday, November 8th, just days after the AMPTP announced they'd present their best and final offer, the Actors Union announced that they'd reached a tentative agreement. As reported by Vanity, Bargaining Committee member Sean Astin told strike captains, quote, their sacrifice worked. People have put so much of themselves. The toll it takes is real. The level of emotion is impossible to overstate, end quote. So pressure has increased on both the studios and workers in the weeks since the WGA were victorious in their strike. The studios were forced to move closer to the union's position by the fact that the 118-day strike was beginning to threaten next year's highly profitable summer movie season. Uh-oh. Yeah, pretty important. How else are we going to get our The Rock feature and our Vin Diesel feature? Yeah, you're right. No, we gotta we gotta get uh, whatever movie number six or uh, no, you know, just other sorts of uh, <laughs> like another John Wick movie or some shit. Yeah, like yeah. That. How else are we gonna get the new Elon Musk biopic from Darren Aronofsky from the A24 Studios, a real project that was announced recently? You've just depressed me. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I I that that's terrible. I know how far Aronofsky has fallen, but anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the the full deal the full details of the agreement still aren't publicly known and SAG's board just reviewed them on Friday before sending the deal to membership. Statements from industry sources say that the 3-year deal includes major gains to wages as well as broad protections from actors losing work to AI. As reported by Variety, minimum wages for actors will raise by 7%, higher than the increase in minimums for new contracts won by the WGA and and the DGA. So, so this uh, looks like to be a pretty pretty big deal. Yeah, that that really does speak volumes too, especially considering that SAG is you know in no small measure handily the largest of the three unions and contains the largest percent of union membership that is making uh, extremely low wages. Yeah, and and announcing the deal on Twitter, the union said, quote, in a contract valued at over a billion dollars, we have achieved a deal of extraordinary scope that includes above pattern minimum compensation increases, unprecedented provisions for content and compensation that will protect members from the threat of AI, and for the first time establishes a streaming participation bonus. 
Our pension and health caps have been substantially raised, which bring much-needed value to our plans. In addition, the deal includes numerous improvements from multiple categories, including outsized compensation increases for background performers and critical contract provisions protecting diverse communities. We have arrived at a contract that will enable SAG-AFTRA members from every category to build substantial careers. Many thousands of performers now and in the future will benefit from this work. End quote. And I'm very excited to actually get the details of this contract because this stands to be a huge, huge win for the working class. Have we ever on this show been sitting around waiting for the details of so many TAs at the same time? Like there are so many fucking TAs up in the air right now. I literally have trouble keeping them straight sometimes. And it I doesn't help that every fucking union is a goddamn acronym. Right? Well, and I mean, like, as Max was just going through the list, his memory is just so good because so he's sharp. just calling calling back on all of these things. And I'm like, yeah, I remember reporting on that. And I mean, like, it just is so true how much and just even just the stuff back to 2022, mm-hmm. it was immense. The, the fights have been just escalating. Like, well, yeah, it was largely, I think, in relation to the uh, Palestine conflict where Max was saying, like, it feels like years have happened in a few weeks but it's also just the fucking domestic labor movement alone you could say that about and it would still feel like years have happened in a matter of months you know yeah i mean it it's it's truly truly impressive and you know what else is impressive all of the grad workers who are are joining unions as well to, mm-hmm. I mean, the wins do just keep coming from all over, not only in contracts, but in elections, because in the union movement in academia, at this rate, it's become more surprising when a major graduate school isn't unionized, right. which I think is is amazing. Uh, this week, graduate student workers at Cornell became the latest massive group of workers to join the labor movement as they voted overwhelmingly 1873 to 80, a 96% in favor of joining joining the United Electrical Workers, UE. Hell, Hell yeah, one of our yeah. favorite unions, too. Absolutely, and another over 90%. About mm-hmm. two-thirds of the school's 3,000 graduate students participated in the vote, which is a pretty good turnout. And that's actually a statistic... We don't talk about the turnout statistics necessarily all as often as we talk about like the actual win percentages, because at the end of the day, that is the statistic that like truly matters. But seeing this kind of membership engagement and then having a 96 percent, you know, a, a join vote for the UE with two thirds of your union voting, I mean, that shows that like even if you take in everybody who didn't vote into consideration there's still a remarkably high level of cohesion within this union. Even like with Wisconsin, like union uh, recertification law where non-votes count as no votes, they still mm-hmm. would have won this. Yeah, correct. In a correct. union drive. Not not like maintaining a union, but in an initial union drive. Yeah, this, so, isn't, a, this isn't a strike authorization vote or anything. <laughs> this is a much bigger vote than that. Yeah, and so like so many other unions that we've covered in the last few years, the origin of the drive began in the worst parts of the COVID pandemic. Organizers built up support before launching a card drive just two months ago, gathering 2,500 signatures in under a month which is huge. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was reported by the Cornell Daily Sun. 
a previous unionization attempt, in, as with many of these graduate unions, did happen in 2017. At the time, affiliated with the AFT, they narrowly lost their election by fewer than 100 votes. The school administration later found to have was later found to have violated the NLRA by sending out emails to students, basically threatening them if they voted yes. Such violations today would be a textbook case for a Semex bargaining order. And I mean, like, we've also seen that, especially after the pandemic, workers are fed up. Mm-hmm. They are ready to get in the fight and join their unions. Uh, during the campaign, union organizers laid out a platform of issues they now hope to bargain over. These include health care improvements, including adding dental and vision coverage, harassment protections and a fair grievance procedure, low costs for university housing and free bus passes, support for international students, including covering burdensome fees, low-cost dependent health insurance and child care for families, uh, fair wages and fair wages to cover cost of living, including annual inflation adjustments cola basically basically a list of like all of the demands that we always see when academic workers are organizing particularly the support for international students which is something that is constantly weaponized against these international students by universities is they will just pile them with fees they will restrict their ability to do certain things they will make all of their like you know liberties and, and and permissions on campus totally conditional and the only real way we're ever going to be able to stand up for those students is with this kind of labor activity. Yeah. And on a social media post, union organizers said, quote, this victory belongs to all of us, the thousands of workers who cast their votes, the hundreds of organizers throughout the university who organized a lightning fast campaign. Most of all, we owe this victory to the enduring relationship we have built over the last few years in every department through one on one conversations, office visits and over social media. We appreciate how many of you responded to our texts and calls and made your voices heard at the polls this past week. We're thrilled to join other grad unions at MIT, Northwestern, John Hopkins, and many others. We look forward to having a productive relationship with Cornell at the bargaining table. End quote. Hell yes. I'm Hell so yeah. excited. I'll be excited when I'll be really excited when Cornell also looks forward to having a productive relationship at the bargaining table. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, like, and I mean, I know that it's that it's really important as a union to put forward that like we are ready to bargain in good faith because what it does is it shows on its face when the administration doesn't that. It is truly the administration that is intransigent because it's not actually I genuinely believe that these grad workers would love to bargain in good faith and get a, a good contract. And we do just know that the administration is not going to be interested in that. And we're going to see what kind of repression they c- kind of hand down. But I mean, that's going to be a story for another time, uh, well, a story for this time, which I do really wish that we had had Max for this is the meme review. That's and, right. So our first one is a screenshot from a movie, which I just, I don't even know what this is. There is a boat on a, on a hill, presumably being dragged up a dirt hill. Yeah. Yeah, Is this like a boat? Is this one of those situations where like, there's those famous stories of people dragging boats like over Central America to get from one ocean to the other? I think that might be what's happening here. (laughs) Maybe, maybe. And then there's this 
person look in a in a white suit looking up at the boat and the boat is labeled the bare minimum and the person is uh labeled me hung over at work clearly they are not dragging this boat up the hill and <laughs> like it that it's going to be nearly impossible for that to happen so uh i i really i think that this if not uh anything very aesthetically pleasing as a meme hell yeah well and that's just me you know every day at work i don't have to be hung over i could be before coffee i could not have drank enough coffee by now i could have had too much coffee and i'm feeling kind of jittery and in any of those situations my ass ain't doing shit much less the bare minimum that's right uh, <laughs> but our 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 next one uh What's this guy's name? This is Uncle is that Fester. Fester? From, yeah. Yeah, from the Adams family. And uh, it, it's a tweet meme. So the tweet says, uh, it, it's not, you don't see the name of the poster, but it says, less salary with good sleep is better than huge salary with bad sleep. And then under it, it says, me with less salary and bad sleep. And it just has Uncle Fester with his eyes looking about <laughs> as big and with as big a bags under him as you could possibly ever have. And I like that both of our memes so far in the meme review are basically what it feels like when I go to work on less than six hours of sleep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I just like wide-eyed, like just just barely hanging on at this point <laughs> mm-hmm. um but and then our next one is actually a, an onion article because they just don't miss and uh this one has the headline is uh israel palestinians give an- given ample time to evacuate to nearby bombing sites which is a really real i mean like you think oh wow this is uh really timely right so topical right and uh then you see the published date and it says july 23 2014 and i know that we don't need to tell our listeners this as you know i'm sure you're very aware but this is not new israel has been doing this genocide for a very long time yeah the oppression of palestinians is older than anybody on this show that is true it's almost a century old by now yeah and to to move to our next one, we actually have kind of a, a fake union poster, which mm-hmm. has really like almost like Soviet vibes to it. With very the, Soviet with, realist kind of vibes, yes. Yeah, and it's the International Brotherhood of Biscuit Makers and Allied Trades, uh, and the farmer is a uh, an orange cat in overalls, reaching his paw down, holding the the paw of another kind of uh, brownish cat, which is labeled Baker, and it says. From field to tummy, building better biscuits. And, Hell yeah! Uh, there's there's just a nice little uh, like union logo in the bottom, and there's like a factory in the background. There's a wheat growing in the upper part of the background. It's just like a really really well done piece of art. It's like, fabulous. I, my only critique is I don't see a blanket anywhere, which is where cats usually make biscuits, quote unquote. So that's true. That's true. <laughs> kind of curious about that. These seem like literal biscuits with a paw print in them. Yeah. <laughs> but uh our last meme is also animal themed. If you've ever played Untitled Goose Game, you'll know that it is uh one of the easiest games to pick up and understand as a totem for the working class in gaming. And this just features the goose sitting on top of an axe that is uh sitting in a tree stump, the way that you leave an axe behind when you're done splitting wood. And the goose is holding a picket sign that says on strike, less honks for more bonks? Unfair. Geese United, local 1312. And then it just says next to the goose, labor peace was never an option. Which is 
strikingly close to the tagline of this show <laughs> yeah and this was posted by admin uh in the discord pat so i have a slight inkling that mm. maybe he made this but either way if he didn't or maybe just edited it it's good as hell and i love it hell yeah much love to pat and shouts out to all the memes in the review and shouts out to max for coming on the show thank you so much max i know you're not in the voice chat anymore but we fucking love you and we want to encourage listeners to go and check out everything that max is a part of because it's all very good work it's it's true and i mean you could hear by how thorough he was at you know commenting on any of the stories that he is a really great labor reporter so if you're interested in more labor news definitely check out his work but we're going to wrap this episode here we want to thank everyone who supports us whether it be sharing the show with your friends or supporting us on patreon which is the only place that we get funding and that is at patreon.com slash work stoppage we've also got lots of overtime episodes that you know you can check out we're actually doing a uh, a history uh, or a, a series on military unions and organizing the military and whether or not we should do it so mm-hmm. you know it's it's pretty interesting and so become a patron for that write us a review somewhere all the links are at workstoppagepod.com listen to beep beep lettuce listen to red game table listen to working people check out the real news and as always Labor peace is not in our interest and solidarity forever. Solidarity. Dropped from out the clouds, had to change form. Flooded the plains, had them praying for my brainstorms. I'm a master, peace from divine. A worker, I got a bit of mob trying to frame John. I'm here to win ever a conflict with a postcode drawn so the pros and the cons split. Professionals, been robbing hoods with a palm flick. Gave to the poor and the black, the stigmata of convict. See the cross we bears too familiar. Embedded in the home of the brave, the darkest of interiors. So street scholars and soldiers defect. Cause they post traumatic stress on their American experience. Go all in. I'm finna go all in, murk every line. Came before this delivery, make our friends. See my heart bleed from the hardship of my origins. My great grandson from a band is sunken auctions. It's a Raising edge of my cadence and shredding through these paper trails. Only alphabet boys I trust is in a wagon nail. Only alchemy justify the nuggets I expel in the city idols trying to be the next idol whales rock. I don't know what you might have heard, but we ain't going nowhere. But up, got a whole squad dressing all black at the streets on notice. What up, they want us in the same place. Ain't nobody ever gonna really change nothing but us. Hello, this is revolution. Get on up. Long queen with a street type of etiquette That's why I rule over every subject and predicate Scrawl these searing indictments on every edifice and balls on my holy cabal The only evidence left Excuse the venom in my rap tone Cause more often than sweet life serve vinegar in black homes More specifically with fire lit them crack stones War on drugs turn a fiend a fella in the snap gone Inspired I am my dagger tribe Cause polished lies try and tell us that your bass is the dagger tribe So I'ma turn this pen and tab into a tabernacle So them jeans can't distinguish God from me I and I Spit the 12, drew the friend from the 13th This a clear view like baby seeing from the first blink They can buy the spirit from my nation, cut the purse strings Gene pool established ancestors was the first link Guarantee we finna recoup Stuntin' recover, got name gold on the molars of every tooth We buying back the blocks like Wall Street pursuit We fell a couple of times, the rise absolute trust I don't know what you might have heard, but we ain't going nowhere But up, got a whole squad dressing all black at the streets on notice what up? They want us in the same place. Ain't nobody ever gonna really change nothing but us. Hello, this is revolution. Get on up. Mm-hmm.